0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
0: McCormick. And boy, we got a good batch of listener mail for you today. Rob, do you want to jump right in with this message about the Shanghai Jing?
1: Sure thing. This one comes to us from Jing and uh jing says hi robert and joe hope all is well i've been a fan of stuff to blow your mind ever since the day i found your show Um, They don't say when that day is. It could have been yesterday. It could have been years ago. I don't know. But I I like it that we won them over so quickly. It Um, was a Thursday. (laughs) Uh, They continue. I enjoy the wide range of the topics and the depth of your discussions, which is both informational and riveting to listen to. Your recent two-part episodes on the Shanghai Jing are particularly intriguing to me. As someone from China, ancient Chinese myths and literature are very dear to me, and I really enjoyed listening to your discussions on this ancient text. When Joe mentioned the Chinese creation myth during the discussion of hundun, it actually reminded me of the myth of Pangu, who was the giant that created the world in ancient Chinese mythology. In the story, hundun was also the word used to describe the world before everything came into being, which was a chaotic mass like an egg. In this huge mass of hundun, the giant Pangu slept, After he woke up, he swung an axe and split the world into two, the lighter part of which rose up and became the sky, and the murkier part sank down and became the earth. Pangu was worried that the earth and the sky would mingle again, so to stop the world from retrograding into the chaotic mass, like uh, Atlas from the Greek myth, Pangu stood on the ground with his hands holding the sky— each day, the sky would rise a foot higher and the earth would sink down a foot lower. And Pangu would grow his body long with the earth and the sky until 18,000 years had passed. After Pangu died of exhaustion, like Ymir in the North Smith, the giant's body turned into the world we know today. His breath became the wind and the cloud. His voice became the thunder that strikes. His eyes became the sun and the moon. His limbs became the mountains. His blood became the rivers. His muscles became the soil. His hair became the stars. His skin became the grass and trees. His sweat became the rain. Shanghai Jing is one of the sources we have today, which contain the most raw material of the ancient Chinese myths that survived. It's not easy to read, even for a well-educated native Chinese speaker, because it's so ancient and obscure, but it's also weird and fascinating. I'm so happy that you chose to dive into it, and as always, I feel like you did a great job presenting it to an audience who may not even have heard of it, while at the same time still managing to demonstrate its super weird and interesting aspects. I hope you stay safe, and please keep up the good work. Jing. Oh, what a great message. Thank you, Jing. Yeah, I really appreciate hearing about that. Uh, You know, this is the the story of of Pangu is really, really cool. And uh, it's one that I I actually just finished reading uh, some about this uh, to my son, because as as part of Chinese New Year, we were we busted out some some new to us uh, Chinese myth and folktale books. And so we were reading some some of that. And and of course, it's it's, it's kind of mandatory that those books have to have uh, this cool creation story in there as well.
0: I'm interested that there are so many different creation myths in which the world is created out of the body of a dead god, but their like, body parts don't always become exactly the same things. Mm-hmm. So I think we've talked about at least one other, maybe the, the inferred Proto-Indo-European creation myth in which it's believed, I think, that the... The hair of the gods somehow represents the vegetation of the earth, like the grass and the trees here. Yeah. But here, the hair is the stars. I, I love that difference.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's so many different ways you could pull it apart, right? Because on one hand, when a body dies, uh, it, it does become the earth, you know, in a very, you mm. uh, know, in, in a way that would be observable to, to ancient peoples. Uh, but then there's the whole idea of like, how do I make sense of the world? beyond my body. Sometimes I turn to the metaphors of my body to do so. And then, of course, we kind of do the reverse at times as well. It's funny. This also reminds
0: me of uh, the, the thing we talked about not too long ago. Which episode was it? I, I don't quite recall. But about the idea that limestone land masses are often made up largely of the the body parts of things that used to be alive. You know, this mm-hmm. rock that is now the earth. Uh, there there are abiotic processes that form limestone as well. But a, a lot of the earth's limestone is just what used to be the shells and body parts of algae, coral, foraminifera, all kinds of, uh, you know, shelled critters that live in the ocean.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Okay, you ready for this next message about brain and head theft? Let's do it. This is from Danny. She says, Hey, guys, I came across your show a couple weeks ago. Love it. And I'm working my way through your archives. I've been meaning to send this email for a while. I thought you might appreciate that I was listening to your recent brain theft episode while dissecting a brain. (laughs) Very good. Uh, uh, She goes on a rat brain, a fetal rat brain. I'm not some weirdo, though, or at least not that kind of weirdo. I'm doing my PhD in neuroendocrinology at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, Very... Interesting coincidence here, Danny, that uh, you probably know this, but Edinburgh was a sort of ground zero for a lot of historical corpse theft and cadaver shenanigans, and it was also kind of ground zero for phrenology within Great Britain, at least. The the Edinburgh Phrenological Society was one of the the great fountains of quackery in the early 1800s. (laughs) But uh, Danny goes on. So at the moment, I'm dissecting out the hippocampus, mashing it up and growing the hippocampus cells in a dish. I'm then going to treat those cells in a dish with the stress hormone corticosterone, the rat version of cortisol, and then collect the RNA from those cells. I'm then going to do PCR for specific RNA sequences. I'm looking at the sequences the cells use to make the proteins of GABA receptors. Remember, DNA makes RNA, makes protein, makes everything. GABA receptors are essentially the traffic lights of the brain and tell the traffic to slow down or stop, making them important in regulating the signals within the nervous system. In the wider context, I'm looking at how prenatal stress programs offspring to develop anxiety in adulthood. One reason is likely changes to GABA receptors during development. So stress in the womb leads to weird GABA receptor development, leads to increased anxiety and changes to the normal and expected physiological stress response. Oh, that's very interesting. Maybe we'll have to follow up and and do a uh, do an episode on that hypothesis. That that's very interesting. But anyway, uh, Danny goes on that uh, she's attaching a picture if we we're interested. It uh, says, feel free to share anything I say in this email, but not this picture, please. We will not share it. It comes from a rat fetus, 18th day of gestation, and is about 10 centimeters long. The hippocampus is about four millimeters long. It's fiddly work. And uh, this is a the, the little rat brain. To me, it looks like a pink fly's head. It's like with the big compound eyes and the proboscis.
1: Yeah, it was uh, – I actually saw this picture before I looked, read the content of the email, and I had no idea what I was looking at. It looks like something um, – you know a pet might cough up and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and just cause confusion. I guess it is literally the sort of thing a pet might cough up.
0: But then Danny goes on. On a completely different note, like I said, I'm working my way through your archives, and I recently listened to your episode on malapropisms, and it reminded me of my visual malapropisms – I grew up in Vienna, Austria, and the subway system, the U-Bahn, has these stickers letting dog owners know that dogs need to wear a muzzle. While I do understand the picture, my brain always sees something else first, a punk dog with a mohawk looking down. Maybe that says more about my musical taste. And Rob, I attached the picture for you to see. Uh, Once I read that, I see it. Yep. yep it's like uh which is which is the ninja turtles villain with the mohawk is bebop right yeah yeah (laughs) okay
1: (laughs) yeah it does look like a mohawk
0: Danny continues, the other one is the airbag icon in most cars. This one took me a long time to work out, but again, even though I understand that it's supposed to be a person with an airbag, to me it always looks like a donkey carrying packs. I'm attaching both pictures. Hope this email elicits at least a smile. Your latest DD playing Lord of the Rings loving science nerd fan,
1: Danny. Oh. Yeah, well it's hard see- for me to see the donkey when I look at that icon, but if I I can see where different interpretations might be possible, I see the donkey it it <laughs>
0: reminds me of the donkey looks very put upon like it has a large ball on its back
1: it, it does oh. remind me how we have different interpretations of the stuff to blow your mind logo about what oh, it, yeah. what the um, you know, the various uh, uh, circles and lines uh, mm-hmm. you know what what it could be interpreted as of course it, in reality it's just it's supposed to be obscure uh, it's supposed to lend itself to to different interpretations.
0: No, it's clearly a symbol of our allegiance to the lizard people or whatever. <laughs> what's what's the weirdest interpretation we've heard of it?
1: Oh, oh man. Um, sounds like somebody riding a bicycle, I think, was one. Yeah. Uh, that one is kind of hard to, to shake. Like, if I look at it, I can sort of see that, like some sort of stick person on some sort of stick-wheeled Susian vehicle. Um, but also, if you turn some of the, the the circles into eyes, you can create some sort of a weird monster face. So I like that. It's like a Lego block. Good for any game. Yeah. All right. Here's another one for us. This one comes to us from uh, Mona, I believe. Uh, This is uh, responding to our vault episode or episodes on Mount Vesuvius. Hello, Robert and Joe. I am enjoying the lessons of Vesuvius episodes. I grew up 30 miles from Mount St. Helens. I was very young when her most famous eruption occurred, yet I clearly remember the earthquakes leading up to that day 41 years ago. I worked as an educational interpreter at Newberry National Volcanic Monument. Uh, Newberry Caldera in Newberry Volcano uh, is northeast of Crater Lake near Bend, Oregon. Joe loved seeing Crater Lake, technically uh, misnamed as it is a caldera, yet he felt let down by not seeing multiple lakes and a forest in the caldera. Newberry Caldera has two good-sized lakes, separated and surrounded by obsidian lava flows, pumice cones and domes, hardened ash cones, cinder cones, a lot of mountain hemlock, and lodgepole pine trees, beautiful alpine and volcanic wildflowers, rare white bark pine, and a Kevin Costner film credit. Paulina Creek drains the caldera with many waterfalls and cascades as it flows off the volcano. The first and most well-known waterfall is Paulina Falls. Paulina Falls is uh, shot in a winter scene of The Postman, circa nineteen ninety-seven. Did you ever see this one, Joe? I didn't. Though I, the the main
0: thing I know about The Postman is that there's a scene where Tom Petty is in, is in it, playing uh-huh. like the mayor of a future post-apocalyptic settlement. And though I've never seen it, from what I recall reading about it, uh, Tom Petty, it is implied that he's playing himself. Like he's uh, he's just he shows up, he's unnamed in the film, and he's the mayor of this this settlement. And I think Kevin Costner says to him like Hey, I know you.
1: You were famous." And he's like, "Yep." <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah. My only connection to this film, I never saw it, is that uh, a guy from my hometown is like a kind of a professional cowboy. And, uh, or has been at times. And <laughs> okay. he pops up in some of these films uh, riding his horse, uh, okay. doing horse work. And he worked on that film, apparently.
0: Wait, wait, wait. When you say professional cowboy, do you mean actual professional cowboy as in like cattle driver or like cat works with cattle or you mean he professionally portrays a cowboy?
1: What I know of him, uh, he has he's driven big rigs, but he also like he actively has cattle and horses. Like so he does actual cowboy work, but then he'll for fun, like do a cattle drive out in the West mm-hmm. and he'll pop up, uh, doing uh, horse work and movies like this. So uh, okay. you know, he's, he's been all over the place. So actually am a cowboy and I play one on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's a straight up, like I'm, I'm not really exaggerating <laughs> when I say he's a, he's a cowboy. He's a, he's a pro cowboy and has, uh, has earned income from that. Uh, anyway, um, Our our listener continues, I don't recall what the scene entails. I just know when the postman was filmed across Oregon, the road into the caldera was cleared of snow that winter. This is still discussed fondly by locals who are accustomed to having only the first 10 miles of the U.S. Forest Service road plowed to reach winter recreational opportunities in the caldera. Be well, Mona. Oh, is this a picture you found, Rob? This is a picture I found. I just included Uh this, uh, just did a quick search and included this for our benefit, Jeff beautiful.
0: Yeah. Um I think this is picking up on something we talked about in the Vesuvius episodes which is the indifference of nature to the geological risks, how mm-hmm. it, there can be a volcanic eruption that uh, just paves over and basically sterilizes the surrounding area but pretty soon nature just pours back in and you can see forests and trees in, going into the caldera where, you know, it may well be the case that uh, that another eruption is coming.
1: And then when you get a Hollywood film crew in there, it's yeah. you know, they'll open up roads that have never been opened before. It's amazing <laughs> the, the kind of uh, the kind of stuff that can happen when they when they hit the ground in a in the wilderness, in a neighborhood. Uh, it, they shake things up. We know a lot about that. Yeah.
0: Okay, next message comes from Alex. This is about spinning and nystagmus. Alex says, Hello, Robert and Joe. I've been listening to your podcast for three or four years now. It makes morning commutes and work less boring. (laughs) Well, I'm glad. Um, Some of my favorite episodes are the ones about the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, but I digress. I'm writing in about your episode about spinning. You mentioned nystagmus in passing, and I thought someone was finally going to raise some awareness of an eye condition me and others have been struggling with, but no such luck. So I am writing in to attempt to do so through your listener mail segment. Basically, I was born with a condition called congenital nystagmus, meaning that it has been there from birth, and it is exactly as you described in your spinning episode. My eyes constantly move from side to side, and the intensity can increase or decrease according to stress or other factors. It can even get to the point where my head can move slightly in the same manner depending on the level of stress or if I'm focusing really hard on a given task. The reason that I, and I'm willing to bet anyone else with this condition, wants people to be aware is that it is very much impossible to make eye contact when having conversations, for obvious reasons, so it makes certain situations uncomfortable. And people who may not be aware may write us off as weirdos or crazy because they just see our eyes going crazy, but it is very much not intentional. As far as living with the condition itself goes, you would think that from the eye movements that we would always see things moving, but in reality, we see things normally. However, this comes at a hefty cost. Basically, the way it was explained to me is the brain has to compensate for the movement, so the actual vision takes a major hit. In my case, I'm considered legally blind as a result, which is defined as central visual acuity of 20 200 or less in the better eye with best correction. I choose not to drive, even though I passed both my practical and written tests on the first try due to this. But this would also uh, make the test you discussed for drunk drivers that police are using a bit problematic. Mm. Oh, yeah. Anyway, that is all I know, and there is no possible cure until stem cell research progresses more, since, at least in my case, it appears to be damage to the optical nerve. If you decide to research further into this and further inform people, I would really appreciate it. Alex. Well, uh, thanks for letting us know, Alex. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know anything about that. Uh, I, I may have seen a line or something about uh, there being other conditions that cause nystagmus other than just, like, spinning around.
1: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. All right, here's another listener mail. This one comes to us from James. Dear Robert and Joe, long time, second time. Uh, I'm writing in because of your listener mail nightmare key episode. Rob mentions a particular relaxing miniature painter uh, on YouTube, uh, but doesn't mention them by name. I'm almost certain I know who you're talking about, but he definitely deserves the shout out. Is it Goobertown Hobbies? Brent manages to combine a knowledge of miniature and, and, and many adjacent hobbies with a laid-back tone similar to Norm Abram on This Old House. Great Sunday morning coffee time programming. <laughs> uh, if it's not Goobertown, shout out to him anyway. He's great. Whomever you were referring to totally deserves a mention, and I'm sure a portion of your audience would love their content. Anyway, I love all the shows you two do. Sorry to, to harass you about YouTubers. Keep doing what you're doing. All the best, James from Michigan. Uh, well, uh, th- thanks, James. Um, so it's not Goober Town Hobbies, uh, but I looked them up and they look, they look very interesting. I, I dig the vibe, so I'm going to have to subscribe to that channel. Um, I, I thought I, I maybe name dropped uh, this individual, but here it is again anyway. Uh, the main one I was talking about is this guy named Sorastro, S-O-R-A-S-T-R-O. And uh, he does these these uh, YouTube uh, videos where he's painting models from Star Wars Legion, but also from the Lord of the Rings games and a Marvel game, various stuff. And I just find him very relaxing and, and also very informative for the hobby. But I also really like some other videos that I've seen, the official Warhammer videos that cover basics like painting pale flesh and so forth. I found those super, super good and very informative. There's also a guy from Australia named uh, Zorpa Zorp uh, that's also <laughs> very helpful helpful, uh, a little more high energy, but also just very helpful content for anyone out there who's either learning miniature painting for the first time or looking to make you know, gradual improvements in their mini painting game. I'm only getting a keyhole view into this world. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, that's the great thing is that now it's there. I mean, this is one of the the great things about YouTube and the Internet, because like when my when when I was a kid, I remember my dad had these magazines about Mm -hmm. painting and and all. And, yeah, there were hobby stores you could go to. But but it seemed like it was a lot. It would have been a lot harder to pick up like all the little tips of the trade. And now you can watch these videos and, you know, they'll they'll list out the things you need. They'll show you You get to actually watch, you know, like like through their eyes, really, as they're painting. Uh, I find it very helpful.
0: YouTube is such an interesting and highly divergent force in our world. I mean, it it is it is so great and so terrible. YouTube the great and terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got like some of the absolute worst of us yeah. <laughs> you can find on YouTube. But but then there's great stuff. Like I mentioned that mm-hmm. uh, that Ants Canada page recently. My my son's been super into that. Like he's super into ants now. Like he's 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 telling me things about ants that uh, that I didn't know, you know. And we've we've done Content about ants uh, mm-hmm. in in the last year, but he's he's still busting out ant species and uh, and wowing me with it. And it's you know it's from YouTube that he's uh, learning these things. I just tell him to stay out of the comments. Just do not look. Don't oh, look down ugh, there. Yeah. Oh god! <laughs> Even if it's about ants, I'm sure there's some there's some horrible stuff in the comments. Yeah.
0: All right. This next message comes to us from Blair. It is about our, I think we ran a vault episode about Kamamuda.
1: Mm, yes.
0: Blair says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I was listening to the recent Vault episode about Kamamuda. Oh, yeah, I guess we did. Uh, And it got me thinking about the recent viral popularity of sea shanties. For (laughs) context, though I'm sure it was hard to avoid hearing about this bizarre trend, a Scottish mail carrier recently uploaded a video of himself singing a shanty on the video sharing service TikTok, which inspired many other users to layer their own videos on top of his to create impressive harmonies. Sea shanties served to keep sailors working in sync while performing grueling physical labor aboard sailing vessels. Each song was designed to complement a particular repetitive task. For example, the song Blow the Man Down was used to keep sailors in time while hoisting topsail. I would speculate that sailors singing these traditional shanties would have felt a great feeling of communal oneness singing these call-and-response songs while working on a common and challenging task. I also wonder how much Kamamuda plays into viral internet trends more broadly. Once a given trend gets big enough to become a thing, I imagine that many new contributors are motivated by the feeling of being a part of a larger movement. Thank you for making such a quality show. I listen to your shows as soon as they hit my feed. I love Weird House Cinema, and y'all have turned me on to some amazingly weird movies to torment my fiancé with. (laughs) All the best, Blair. Uh, I got to say, I... I was only, in the vaguest sense, peripherally aware of the TikTok uh, sea shanty thing. I think I realized I'm just like, I've mostly extracted myself from social media these days. So there's a lot going on on the internet that I'm just not aware of.
1: Yeah, I didn't know about this until uh, Stephen Colbert did a, a bit on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, But it's, uh, it, it's cool. I, I, I saw the, the footage of the different layered uh, sea shanty singers, and uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. They're not doing any manual labor in it it should be stressed well there's one thing that
0: i don't think we actually talked about in the kamamuda episode or if we did i forgot about it which is the uh, the potential feelings of reciprocal communal trust that are often forged just by labor by like working yeah. together with people on a project which in certain circumstances, can can easily create division and strife. But there, I guess it depends on what type of project it is and what the people working on it with you are like. There are some projects that just really naturally, I think, bring people together with, uh, with bonds. Projects that are like, um, conceptually simple but physically difficult.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like certain, like basic yard care can be like that. Like I'm thinking yeah. of like, um. Like church service projects, where you like go and and help somebody you know who needs their their yard cleaned up for the fall, or they need ice scraped up in the winter, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Those can be be very rewarding. You know, you're not you're not doing anything that's necessarily you know uh, conceptually hard to to deal with. Uh, you know, like it, it's pretty basic what you need to do. You need to pick up a bunch of leaves, or uh, you know something of that nature. But uh, yeah, it can bring you together, and it can be it can be challenging, and yeah, you kind of emerge from it uh, bonded. I guess that's why you see uh you know for well, for a variety of reasons workplaces sometimes do service projects but mm-hmm. uh, you can see it definitely as a, as a as a way to 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 you know build these bonds among the various employees
0: yeah i feel like the kind of work that's more apt to cause division between people is that which like is, uh, which could be accomplished through varying different strategies and it's not exactly clear which strategy is the best one
1: yeah 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 <laughs> And I guess you can run into that even with stuff like raking leaves. If you someone oh, yeah, is really you um yeah. you know uh, firm about it and they're like, no, this is the way. You have yeah. to pick up two rakes and use them like claws, uh that sort of thing.
0: That's that's a stupid method. I've tried it. <laughs> what really? if you have
1: what if you have the special like Freddy Krueger rake hand things that you can get? You I should, like, put them you on know, your hand?
0: Th- Those things are a scam. <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> I haven't really tried them. But they look kind of neat. Like, they, it's good marketing because they're like, hey, you know that thing that uh, isn't all that fun? Here's mm-hmm. the vague promise that it could be fun yeah. if you bought our claws.
0: You could do it with Hulk hands, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kidding, by the way. I was just trying to create some unnecessary division. I'm sure okay. if, if you enjoy using the scoop hands, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, there's well, no uh,
0: wrong way to rake, folks.
1: <laughs> uh, now, uh, our apologies to Blair's fiance regarding Weird House Cinema, but this is a Ooh. great segue into some Weird House Cinema listener mail. Uh, this one comes to us from Rob. Uh, and they say, hey, Robin Joe, listening to uh, you two talk about your TV and film influences in past episodes and then hearing you discussing where you've seen George Buza, I think I might be able to solve the mystery. In the TV series The Adventures of Sinbad, 1996 through 1998, George played Dubar, Sinbad's older brother. Maybe I'm <laughs> wrong, but that was my first time I remember seeing George on screen. All your episodes are highlights of my week's podcast listening time. Thanks and be safe, gentlemen, Rob. And uh, Joe, just for you and uh, me and you and for the two of us, I uh, found a picture of the Booza as this character on Sinbad and included it for us. What
0: here. what a transcendent Booza face. That is yeah. so good. His beard is as thick and luxurious as like moss. It's just, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's otherworldly. <laughs> And he does look like he could be Sinbad's older brother because he's, you know, he. I can imagine him grabbing Sinbad and giving him noogies.
1: <laughs> I only vaguely remember the Sinbad show. I had to, to look it up here. Like the guy who played Sinbad was, well, first of all, it was not Sinbad, the, the stand-up comedian. It was a guy named <laughs> Zen Gessner. Uh-huh. Um, who I don't think I was familiar with.
0: Um. Uh, yeah, the I I don't know if I was familiar with this show. I was when I grew up. I was very familiar with the Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movies, mm-hmm. especially Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Those movies have amazing, delicious stop motion animation. Great monsters. Sinbad uh, and the Eye of the Tiger has a has a, a bunch of stop motion skeletons. It has a, a robot Minotaur called the Minoton. Oh, um, nice. Maybe we should talk about this movie for weird house sometime, but it also like, uh, it's got a lot of the, you know, tragic old stuff like the, the casting, just like some white hunk as Sinbad. And yeah. And he's just like, hello, I'm Sinbad. And <laughs> it, it's very ridiculous. Oh, and Eye of the Tiger also has a, a really funny, uh, like, Greek philosopher-type figure character who comes into it, uh, whose name is Melanthius and he's played like a by this classic British actor. But he's supposed to be, I think, some kind of combination of, like, Socrates and Archimedes and and also knowing magic.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be neat to – we should consider doing a Sinbad movie in the future, or at least some sort of Ray Harryhausen. I don't think we've – have we done a proper Ray Harryhausen movie?
0: Oh, uh, I don't know if we have, but they it, some of my favorite special effects of all time are, yeah. his, are his stop motion
1: monsters. Yeah, I think maybe we've we've, we've discussed things that are Harryhausen esque, but not Harryhausen himself.
0: All right, this next message comes from Keith. Keith says, hello, Robert and Joe. It was recently mentioned on one of your podcasts that the correct pronunciation for what is spelled Warwick, as in Warwick Davis, is Warwick. Uh, this made me think about the gap between what's said and what's heard. It was mentioned that even when the Warwick version is used, Warwick is heard. I
1: think you said this, right, Rob? Uh, yeah, that, that's what I, I – that, that's Particular to me, I don't know if anyone else has that experience, but yeah, that was what I said. Well, I don't know about in this example, but I mean, yeah,
0: it's totally common that you can, or at least I can, have heard a word pronounced out loud, but I would still be inclined to pronounce it the incorrect way that I read it first. Like if I Mm -hmm. read the word for a long time before ever hearing it. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, going on with Keith's message, I first noticed this when I heard my wife speaking Spanish with someone. I took five years of Spanish, and normally I recognize about 20 to 25 percent of the words a Spanish speaker says. But when my wife speaks Spanish, I understand somewhere around 75 to 80 percent. This left me confused about why familiarity with the speaker would increase my understanding so much. The best thing I could come up with is I'm more adept at inferring phonetic sounds that were meant to be conveyed as compared to what was heard when spoken by my wife. I'm curious about how this gap plays a role in everyone's lives. Keith. Uh, Thanks, Keith. And yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. I think there could be a lot of potential answers to it. But one thing I would guess is that knowing your wife very well, you were probably really attuned also to her – to the meaning communicated through her facial expressions and body language and all that, which acts as a sort of secondary reinforcer to the meaning of sentences. So what might normally kind of go past you really fast in a spoken language that you're not super fluent in, uh, you can sort of get get like a, a comprehension boost by getting the visual aid of seeing someone who you know very intimately speaking. But phonetic differences could also be the same, like if you're just like very familiar with the way your wife talks versus the way people in general talk.
1: Yeah. And, and plus it also goes without saying you, you kind of you have that simulation version of the person that, you know, in your mm-hmm. head. And so you're sort of running all that information through that simulation as well. <laughs> yeah. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Chris. Hello, Robin Joe. I loved your episode on Free Jack. As the driver of a wine delivery truck in southwest Ohio, I can say for a fact that you cannot outrun a police interceptor in one. Wait, have Go. you tried? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that does beg the question. It? Yeah. it raises the question. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they continue. Keep up the great work. I've listened to you guys for years, but this is the first time writing in. Sincerely, Chris. P.S., Uh, Might I suggest the movie Split Second, starring Rudger Hauer for weird... uh, for for weird house cinema, um, okay. So two things. First of all, what is he talking about? For people who didn't listen to the Free Jack episode, there's this fabulous uh, wine. It's, it's I, I included a picture of it here for us, Joe. It says champagne. Mm-hmm. It's this bulky, old looking truck, not a futuristic vehicle at all. But mm-hmm. our hero in Free Jack jumps into it and drives off, and there's a big car chase with it. I commented that it looks like looks looks like the sort of vehicle that Ronnie Vino uh, from At Home with Amy Sedaris would drive around.
0: At one point, we see some bottles tumble out of it, and uh, if I remember correctly, they don't look like normal champagne bottle green. They look like Gatorade green. They're like bright neon green. But I, I mean, guess, that's hey, it's the future. It's 2009, yeah. baby.
1: Yeah, that's the, it's the future. That's the the fad. Um, and I, I love it. Actually, in the screenshot, too, I'm pretty sure I recognize. I don't know specifically what building that is, but that does very much look like Atlanta in the background.
0: Yeah, it does. I think that whole chase sequence was Atlanta.
1: Yeah. Now uh as for Split Second starring Rudger Hauer. Yes, I saw this movie sometime in the last year or two and I absolutely loved it. I uh, I think I was I was telling Joe about it as well. Like Joe, you got to see this. Rudger Hauer's great. He's smoking a cigar, he's cussing out a dog. Um <laughs> there's a lot to love about this film. Okay. Well, let's let's do it. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll put it on the the list, the growing list of movies to consider for Weirdhouse Cinema. Um but, but yeah, thanks for writing in. Thanks for, for sharing your expertise with um, uh, you know, outrunning the law or failing to outrun the law in a wine uh, truck, uh, but also uh, recommending some films for us.
0: Okay. Well, I think that about does it for today. But uh, huge thanks to everybody for writing in.
1: Yeah. Um, and yeah, hey, uh, you know, since it came up, uh, if, if your name is Warwick, if your name is Warwick, uh, if there is some sort of interesting uh, way or a specific way we should be pronouncing your name, include that in your listener mail. Uh, because that'll help us out. Uh, And hey, throw in those pronouns as well, Uh, that also helps us out. we would, of course, love to hear from everybody. Yeah, keep, keep the emails coming. If you have thoughts on these listener mails, if you have thoughts on uh, episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, episodes of Weird House Cinema, suggestions for the future, all of that's fair game. Just write in, let us know. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, they publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Weird House Cinema publishes on Fridays. And then we got a uh, listener mail on Monday. We got Artifact on Wednesday and a Vault episode on the weekend.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.